Many of you have probably by now heard the story of how I came here to chapel. Been here about 16 months now. And uh, Echo and I have a lot of secondhand connections with chapel. But the one that kind of was instrumental in getting us here was through the Higgins family. Uh, Many of you know Tom and uh, Carolyn Higgins. Tom's one of our elders. And Tom's parents, uh, Tom and Donna Higgins, were here for a lot of years. And then they actually were part of the church that Echo and I were part of up in Reading. Donna was actually on staff there for a few years as our kids director. We worked together, and then they continued to be at the church even after she was employed elsewhere. And when Tom heard from his mom that I was, uh, had resigned from the church there, he asked if she could help make a connection to see if I'd be interested in the senior pastor job here at chapel. And so Donna reached out to me, and she said, hey, would you be willing to talk to Tom? He's an elder. He's head of the search committee. Here's his phone number, here's his email. And when she asked me if I'd be willing to talk to him, I said yes, even though in my great wisdom, I thought it was so unlikely that I would end up actually here. Uh, But I said yes, partially because I didn't want to arbitrarily close any doors God might be opening. But also, I said yes, quite frankly, because it was Donna who asked me. And this is a person who I knew, who I respected, who I trusted. And I thought, well, if Donna's asking me to do it, I should probably do it. If if for no other reason, just as a way to honor her. Now, it turned out to be a great connection. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, so far so good. So I'm really grateful that Donna made that connection and that uh, she was able to get me connected with Tom and through Tom to the search committee and ultimately to all of you wonderful folks. I was really, I'm really thankful that Donna, at that key moment in my life, was a connector for me. Now, as you look back on your life story and some of the seasons that you've come through, I bet that you could identify some people that have been connectors in your life as well. Aren't you grateful for those people that have connected you to the folks you needed to get connected with? Aren't you glad for that person that made an introduction or a connection so you could get a job that you needed? Maybe you're even thankful for a matchmaker that connected you with a person who became a spouse for you. We have those people in our lives who function as connectors for us, and there are times when we get to be connectors for other people. And when the parties that we're trying to connect are like each other, it's easier to help make that connection. When they're really different from each other, it's a lot harder to be that go-between and try to get them connected. We're actually seeing in the news recently a lot of stories about uh, some parties that are very far apart in terms of what they want and think they should happen. Like when we hear about the, uh, the actor's strike against the Hollywood studios and the United Auto Workers and the major car companies. And recently, Kaiser Permanente and a bunch of their employees. These are, are parties that are very far apart. And uh, we know that sometimes when these parties are, are, stay apart, there can be really significant um, uh, effects of that in people's lives. So I'm so glad that there are those who step into those kind kind of situations and are the mediators, the negotiators, the go-betweens, the connectors to try to get those parties back together. This whole idea of connectors and go-betweens is central to what we're going to be talking about today as we look at scripture. We are uh, continuing today in our series called uh, People of the Presence. We're making our way through the book of Exodus. And, um, and uh, we, we are seeing God show his presence in lots of ways, including uh, last week we saw God 
show his presence at Mount Sinai in a dramatic way. God wanted the people to know who he was. And so, first of all, he told them, you got to consecrate yourselves in order to meet with me. Because he wanted them to understand that he is holy. And they weren't to approach him casually. And then when God descended on Mount Sinai, uh, it was accompanied by thunder and lightnings and earthquakes and smoke and the visible glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountain. God spoke with a voice that's described as a trumpet and as thunder and uh, he succeeded in impressing the people with who he was. They were in awe of him. They feared him. In that moment they understood his greatness and his holiness and in that context God made a covenant with his people. Covenant implies partnership, a relationship of some kind. But that raises a question. How can that kind of God relate to those kind of people? How can, how can this God, who is so awesome and holy, be in relationship with people who are less than awesome and often very unholy? How can sinful, finite people relate to a God who is so powerful that when he touches the mountains they smoke... A God so, so amazingly glorious that they have to maintain a, maintain a distance from his presence or they'd be struck dead. How can God be present in a meaningful way with these people? These are parties that are very far apart. How are they, is that gap between them going to be bridged? The answer to that question uh, is what we're going to be looking at, at today. And we're, uh, we're, we're going to look at that today as we look at this next section of uh, Exodus that we're moving into, we're at a turning point in the book of Exodus, uh, where, where uh, at the end of chapter 24, where we left off last week, Moses was up on Mount Sinai, the people had confirmed the covenant, and Moses is going to be in God's presence on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And while Moses is there, God is going to give him plans for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable place of worship that the Israelites used to worship God until Solomon would build the temple uh, many, many years later. And the, this tabernacle had three parts to it. There was a courtyard that had an altar and a bronze basin in it. There was an enclosed holy place that had a lampstand, a table with bread on it, and an incense altar. And then there was the innermost room called the most holy place that had the Ark of the Covenant in there. And on the mountain, God gave Moses the instructions for how all that space and how all those furnishings were to be constructed and fabricated. And God also gave him some instructions about the priests who would serve in the tabernacle. So all those instructions are given in Exodus 25 through 31. And then in Exodus 35 through 40, it repeats all of that information as the people build what God told them to build. And it's often repeated actually verbatim what, what he had told them in chapters 25 through 31. So because of that repetition, because of the way this is structured, I don't think it makes sense for me to try to preach through these chapters, you know, verse by verse or chapter by chapter. Instead, what I'm going to do is group the information here into four areas and cover it over the next four weeks. So next week, we'll talk about the courtyard of the tabernacle, two weeks, the holy place, three weeks, the most holy place. But today we're going to talk about the priests. Because priests are a huge part of that answer to the question of how is that gap between people and God going to be bridged? Priests were the go-betweens, the mediators, the intercessors, the bridge builders. The priest's role was to bring God to people and bring people to God. The priest's role was to bring God to people and people 
to God. And we're going to see that as we look at, at some of these verses today. And what I want to do actually is trace this idea of priesthood, starting the Old Testament, but then bringing it through the New Testament so that we see how it applies to us. Because we're not worshiping in the tabernacle, we're not under the Old Covenant, but the idea of priests, of those who are bridge builders, absolutely applies to us. The New Testament actually talks a lot about priests, and so we'll better understand what God wants to communicate through those passages if we understand the background and the context that they were written in and from. So today is all about priests. You buckled up, ready to go? All right. Uh, The chapters that really talk about priests here in Exodus are Exodus 28, 29, and 39. And I'm not going to read all those chapters, but I do want to set the stage by reading just the first five verses of chapter 28. So would you stand with me and follow along as I read these verses for us? Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests, have them use gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Lord, we are grateful again today for your word and for the revelation that you want to bring to us by your spirit through your word. So we say a fresh yes to that work today. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts as a result of this time together, that we'd see you more clearly. We pray that you'd open our ears and minds to hear and understand all that you want to say to us. We pray that you would move on our hearts, quicken us to make the responses you want us to make today. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So Moses' brother Aaron is going to be the high priest, and his sons are also going to serve as priests. And this was a hereditary function that was going to be passed uh, down to their descendants. Uh, Chapter 28, after this little introduction here, goes on to talk about these garments that Aaron would wear in much more detail. Then chapter 29 talks about the ordination ceremony for Aaron and his sons, talks about the sacrifices that were offered and the ritual that they went through to, to be ordained as priests. And then Exodus 39 is, talks again about the garments, about when they were actually made for Aaron and his sons. The ceremony of ordination isn't actually mentioned until Leviticus chapter 8. It's not even in Exodus. But both Exodus 39 and Leviticus 8 basically repeat what Exodus 28 and 29 say. The point is, the people did exactly what God said to do. Now, uh, a big part of the focus in what Exodus says about the priests has to do with these garments that they wore. And there, were, there was some symbolic significance to these, as we'll see. So I want to take just a couple of minutes to uh, talk through what these priests actually wore. Um, this is not a picture of Aaron. Uh, this is a, uh, somebody's uh, recreation, but the first uh, item that's mentioned as these are talked about in more detail is the ephod. An ephod uh, was either a like long vest that would go to the knees or maybe more of an apron. They went with the apron idea here. And this was made out of uh, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn that had gold woven into it as well. Not gold-colored thread, actual gold that had been drawn out thin enough to be able to use Uh, to weave into this. 
The ephod is talked about as having shoulder uh, straps, and on each shoulder there's an onyx stone, and those stones have the names of the tribes of Israel inscribed on them, six on one stone and six on the other. Now, attached to the ephod was the breastpiece, and this was a pouch, a square pouch, about nine inches square, that had on it four rows of three uh, precious gems, so 12 precious stones, and on each of those stones was again inscribed the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And uh, this ephod, the background of it under the stones was made of that blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and was attached to the ephod by gold, by gold chains. And um, so there's the, the breast piece, and then there's a robe ro- worn underneath uh, the ephod, and uh, this was a blue or a violet blue color. It was definitely longer than the ephod, and at the bottom of it, along the hem, it had golden bells that alternated with pomegranates made out of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And so there's the robe. Under the robe was a tunic. This was probably long-sleeved. It was made out of white linen. And then the high priest also wore a turban, again made out of white linen, and it had a gold plate on it, uh, on which was inscribed, Holy to the Lord. Uh, the uh, Chapter 28 also describes a sash that the high priest wore that was again made out of that blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. It's not pictured here. I'm not sure exactly how that fit into the garments, but it's mentioned as part of what the high priest would wear. And at the end of chapter 28, it also talks about linen underwear, undergarments that the priest would wear. And that wasn't just an incidental detail. Pagan priests, especially in Canaan, which is where the Israelites were headed, would often conduct their rituals naked, and there's often a sexual element to them. So there's a really strong contrast being drawn here. That is not going to be a part of the worship of Yahweh, of the Lord of Israel. Uh, They're not going to be naked even underneath their robes. They are covered, and nudity is not even going to be close to something that will be a part of what they do as they uh, minister before the Lord. There's nothing mentioned about what the priests would wear on their feet, Uh, They put sandals on this guy here, which is one possibility. It's also possible that they ministered barefoot. Uh, After all, God told Moses at the burning bush, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. So some scholars think they went around their duties barefoot, but either way, that gives you a sense of these garments that Aaron, as high priest, and all the high priests after him, would wear. There's also mention of special garments for the other priests, and they were less elaborate, but they followed the same the same color scheme to the white linen, the blue or violet blue cloth, and then the uh, gold, purple, and scarlet yarn. And so uh, we have these uh, descriptions given of what the priests would wear as they perform their duty of bringing people to God and bringing God to people. Uh, how, did the, how did the Old Testament priests, how did they go about representing or bringing God to people? Uh, we see this function in a few ways, and the first place we see it is actually symbolized in some of what the high priest wore uh, that, that showed that God was with his people. Uh, well, this is true, for example, with that breast piece that the high priest wore is a pouch, and in it was something called the Urim and Thummim. Uh, verse 30 of chapter 28 says, Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breast piece, so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart, before the Lord. Now, we don't know as much about the Urim and Thummim as we would like. Uh, it's mysterious what that actually was. Um, we know it was a way for decisions to be made. 
to determine, God, what do you want us to do in this situation? Some scholars have thought that they were stones that maybe glowed in some way because Urim means lights. Other scholars think, and this seems more likely to me, that there was a means of casting lots. So the high priest would ask God a question, cast these holy lots, and then they would discern the answer of what God wanted them to do. But whatever they were, he, uh, Aaron carried them over his heart. The heart in the Hebrew way of thinking was the center not just of emotions, but of thoughts and decision-making as well. So it makes sense that the means for making a decision were near to his heart. And as Aaron carried these around, it was a reminder to the people that God is going to let us know what he wants us to do. He hasn't just turned us loose and abandoned us. He's going to direct us. So it's a reminder that God was with his people and directing them. Uh, the, the garments that uh, Aaron wore, they're described in verse 2 of chapter 28 as for the purpose of giving him dignity and honor, or as those words can also be described, glory and beauty. And those are both words that are strongly associated with God himself in many other places in the Old Testament. So the idea is that even in what Aaron wore, it was in some way a reflection of the glory and beauty of God. One commentator put it this way, Aaron's robes with their rich contrast of white and violet blue, along with the interwoven blue, purple, and scarlet, and sparkling with gold thread, will reflect something of the glory and beauty of the God he represented, not just the dignity of the office he held. Uh, the clothes that Aaron wore matched the uh, colors and the materials that the, the curtains and the uh, walls of the tabernacle were made from. And so uh, the violet blue, the gold purple scarlet yarn, that was prominently featured in the construction of the tabernacle itself. And this wasn't just an aesthetic choice so that um, Aaron wouldn't clash with the drapes. Uh, there was actually significance to this, that as Aaron was attired in his high priestly garments, it's like he was a walking mini tabernacle reminding the people God is with us. His presence is with us. So even Aaron's clothes uh, symbolize the presence of God with his people. He's representing bringing God to the people. Um, another way that he did this was um, uh, shown at the end of chapter 29. There's a connection between the priests and the presence of God. God says, so I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God is really underlining here, I'm dwelling with my people, I'm with my people. And the priests are a part of that. What's being consecrated here is all of what's been described in chapters 25 through 29 all that's a part of the tabernacle, but that includes the priests. They were an integral part of the worship that happened there, and so they were an integral part of what it took for God to be present with his people. Uh, we see as we look at other uh, duties of the priests as they're described in the Old Testament that uh, the priests also were to teach the people the laws of God. That's another way they brought God to people was by teaching and explaining the commandments of God. Uh, they also... Uh, the priests were also the ones that would bless the people in the Lord's name. You see that in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, and give you peace. That was a blessing that the priests spoke over the people. So they're representing God's heart to his people as they pronounce that blessing. So in all these ways and more, the priests represent, they bring God to the people, but they also brought people to God. 
And again, this is symbolized even in the garments that Aaron wore. Uh, the names of the tribes of Israel were inscribed in two places on those garments, on the onyx stones on each shoulder and on the 12 stones that were on the breastpiece. So every time Aaron entered the presence of God, he was bringing the people with him as their names were a part of what he wore. So he's bringing the people to God in that symbolic way and in other ways as well. One of the main functions of priests was to offer sacrifices. And in offering those sacrifices, they were making it possible for people to come to God. In the ordination ceremony that's described in chapter 29, there's three uh, types of sacrifices that were offered. These are three of the main types of sacrifices the priests would offer on a regular basis. There was a sin offering where part of the sacrifice is burned on the altar and the rest is burned outside the camp. And that was for the forgiveness or the covering of sins. There was a whole burnt offering, which as the name suggests, meant the whole animal was burnt and consumed on the altar. And that uh, spoke of a complete dedication of oneself to the Lord. And there are also fellowship offerings that were offered. And these are offerings where a portion of them, of the animal would be waved before the Lord, but then it'd be roasted and eaten by the person who brought it and with whoever they chose to share it with. This is the only sacrifice that could be eaten by the person who brought it. So all these are part of not only the ordination ceremony for Aaron and his sons, but the ongoing work that they would do to offer these sacrifices so that people's sins could be covered, so they could come to God, so that they could demonstrate their total dedication to God, so they could celebrate the fellowship they have with God and with one another. Aaron, uh, so Aaron has, and his sons also and their descendants would offer daily sacrifices to the Lord that weren't so much for the point of covering sins, but just worship and praise to God. Uh, towards the end of chapter 29, it, it talks about offerings that would be given twice daily in the morning and the evening. There would be a lamb as a whole burnt offering, a grain offering, and a drink offering. And these were offered, it says, uh, as a sweet-smelling aroma to God, an aroma that pleased God, offered because God liked them. It was just an expression of worship and praise. And this is what the priests did as well. They led the people in worship of God through those offerings. And then later we see the development of temple singers and choirs uh, that are formed as well. So in all these ways, the priests are bringing the people to God. They're representing the people before God. They're making it possible for there to be some sort of relationship between this awesome holy God and these fallible, finite people. They were the mediators that made this possible. They were the go-betweens. They were the bridge builders between the people and God. Now, when I use that language of a mediator and a bridge builder, that should remind us of someone else in Scripture. It should remind us of Jesus himself. Jesus, in fact, is referred to in the Bible several times as a priest or even our high priest. And he not only is called that, but with his life he demonstrated the functions of a priest. Jesus absolutely brought God to people and represented God accurately to us. Uh, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus himself said in John 14.9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is accurately representing God to people. Now, how did he do this, and what, what did this mean? 
Well, Jesus didn't do this in the clothes he wore like Aaron did. He did this in the way he lived. And there's a lot we could describe of what he revealed about God, but just mention a few things as a start. He revealed the glory, grace, and truth of God. John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus also revealed the holiness of God as he lived a life of moral perfection. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So Jesus reveals the holiness and righteousness of God. And in all that Jesus did in his miracles and his healings and the deliverance from demons he performed, he's demonstrating the power and authority of God as well. And so in all these ways and more, Jesus represented God to us. He brought God to people. And he absolutely brought people to God. He brings people to God. He's the way that we can come to God. Remember that part of what priests do is they offer sacrifices. And Jesus uh, certainly did this. Uh, Hebrews 2.17 says, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. That atonement comes through sacrifice. And then Hebrews 7 tells us more of what that was. Now, there have been many of those priests, the descendants of Aaron, since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Himself. Jesus offered himself as the once for all sacrifice for our sins so that we no longer need to sacrifice animals or go to a priest, a human priest, to have that done. Jesus did that. And because he did that, because he is this kind of high priest who gave this kind of sacrifice, he's able to save us completely. Not provisionally, like Aaron and his sons, where there's always the need for another sacrifice, another sacrifice, another sacrifice. Um, Hebrews 10.1 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, uh, can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. There's always going to need to be a need for another sacrifice until Jesus came and gave the once for all sacrifice of himself. He saves us completely and he always lives to intercede for us. He's still bringing us to God in prayer even now. Jesus brings people to God through the sacrifice of himself. Uh, and, and, um, and, and we, so we can draw near to God because of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. We can draw near to God because of Jesus. Man, it's just worth pondering that for a moment. And let me ask you, is that true for you? Have you drawn near to God through Jesus? Have you allowed Jesus to be that bridge between you and God? Or is there still a distance and a separation between you and God? If you've never drawn near to God, today can be your day to do that. You can talk to one of our prayer team members at the end of the service. We'd love to explain to you and pray with you and help you take that step. And if you have drawn near to God, is that a living, fresh reality in your life? Do we appreciate all that Jesus has made possible so that we can draw near to God? Folks, this is incredibly good news. If we just stopped right here, Jesus has brought God to us and brings us to God, but it gets even better because we get to be a part of this. Uh, We, Jesus followers, as God's people today, we have a priestly role that we are to fulfill as well. And when I say that, I don't just mean people like me that are vocationally in the ministry. Like all of us have, have God's people, this is a part of our identity, individually and collectively, that we are priests. Uh, look how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter says here that we are a a, a, a a holy priesthood in verse 2. In verse 5, we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Uh, we are priests, which means that it's our job to represent or bring God to people and to bring people to God. So how do we do this? Well, it helps for us to recognize that we are not just priests, we're also God's tabernacle, his temple, the spiritual house that uh, verse 2 there talked about in, in 1 Peter that we are the temple of God's presence. Uh, individually, First uh, Corinthians 6.19 says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, First Corinthians 3.16 and 17, when we gather together, we collectively are God's temple. His Holy Spirit, His presence is with us, resides with us, dwells in us. Which means that when you come close to a person, God's presence is coming close to them. When you go to someone, God's presence is going to them. Not because you're God, don't get confused about that, but because you carry the presence of God, because the Holy Spirit is in you. And when people come to a gathering of God's people, they should be aware of his presence in our midst. God makes himself known when we gather together. And he does that in all sorts of great ways. Sometimes it's just a hard to put into words awareness that he's present. I've had people come into church and and make comments like, ah, this place just has good vibes. This is is just a good place. It feels good here. This is a peaceful place. And what they're noticing is the presence of God. 
They're just expressing it the best they can. But there's times that we notice God's presence just in the atmosphere of the room. There's times when God makes himself known because he does a miracle, like a a divine healing. There's times when God's presence comes and it sparks a physical or emotional reaction in people. Those are all ways that we could notice God's presence. God displays his power and authority sometimes, and that's a sign of his presence. That was a part of how Jesus demonstrated the, the presence of God was through the miracles he did. We're meant to move in that power and authority in our own lives. It's meant to be a part of what we experience when we are together. But that's not the only way that we bring God to people. Because Jesus did more than just the power and authority. Jesus was also full of grace and truth. And when we are full of grace and truth, we represent God accurately to the world around us. Aren't you glad that we don't have to choose between being gracious or truthful? Some Christians do make that choice. They will really care so much about being gracious. They're so accommodating that they, they end up uh, not ever speaking truth if it would be offensive or even uncomfortable. They're accommodating to the point of compromise on what God says is right and wrong. And then there are Christians that, that go to the other way. They're con- so concerned with speaking God's truth and defending God's truth and, and just proclaiming that, that they do it in ungracious and unloving ways without any consideration for uh, what someone's life experiences have been, their background, the, the uh, trauma they've experienced. W- without any consideration for how to say that truth, they just say it, sometimes in ways that are unnecessarily offensive and hurtful. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He had the perfect balance of being full of both. Grace without truth and truth without grace both misrepresent who God is. Grace without truth is merely tolerance. Truth without grace is judgmentalism. And neither of those reflect the heart of God accurately. So I want to be someone who is full of grace and truth. And when we're full of grace and truth, we're like Jesus representing God to people. And we represent God to people with our holy life. And look, we're not going to achieve moral perfection in this life But that doesn't mean we give up on the idea of becoming more holy. You can be consistently holy. You can be increasingly holy, even if you're not going to be perfectly holy, until you see Jesus face to face. And as we live holy lives, it's meant to represent a holy God to the people around us. We show them what it means to be truly good. Like um, 1 Peter 2 and 11 and 12 that I just read. We live such good lives that people see that, they notice it, and they glorify God. They, they have an accurate sense of who God is and can praise him because they see how we live. So in all these ways, we represent God to people, but we also bring people to God. And the first people we bring to God are ourselves as we come to him in worship and praise. There in 1 Peter 2, it talks about uh, spiritual sacrifices that we offer. And it says that we proclaim the, his praises And this goes right along with what Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 say. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So both 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews 13 are saying that what we say and what we do becomes offerings that are pleasing and glorifying to God. It's part of the, 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 the sacrifice we give that, that's worship to him is what we do and what we say. Romans 12.1 says, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present yourselves to God as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. Or we're meant to live lives that are sacrificed to him. Uh, We're sacrificing ourselves in what we do and say as an offering of praise to God. So we bring ourselves, but we also have a role to play in helping others see how they can come to God through Jesus. Just as the priests in the Old Testament had a role of teaching and instructing the people about God's laws, we have a role to explain to people and tell them how they can come to God through Jesus. How can they draw near to him? If if you've been in church circles for a while, you've maybe heard the term, the priesthood of all believers. That's what we're talking about today. And that's often defined as meaning that we can now come to God directly without having to go through a human priest to get to God. That's true. That's awesome. I'm grateful for that. But let's not be confused that we still have a role to play in introducing people to God. We're not the bridge, but we point people to the bridge, Jesus. We say there is a bridge. There's a way to draw near to God. We can point you to that. And sometimes we even get the pleasure of walking across that bridge with people as they put their faith in Jesus and entrust their lives to him. So we have a a role to play in telling people how they can draw near to God through Jesus. Part of how we fulfill our function as priests also is in how we pray for people. We bring God to people when we bless them. When we speak from God's perspective to proclaim his goodness, to pronounce good things for people, for people we love and we're close to, and like Jesus says, even for our enemies and those we hate. And when we bless, we are accurately portraying the good and gracious heart of God. But also, we were a priest when we intercede for people. The word intercession comes from Latin roots that means to go between. When we intercede for someone, we're going between them and God. We're asking God for what they need on their behalf. We're speaking from our human perspective, asking for God's provision. So as we bless and as we intercede, and in all these other ways, we fulfill this priestly function to bring people to God and God to people. Now, I've given you a crash course in priests. Uh, There's not going to be a test, but there does need to be a response on our part. So what do we do with all this information? Let me give you a couple suggestions of how we might respond today. The first question to ask, again, is, have you drawn near to God? Have you walked across that bridge, which is Jesus and all that he did, so that you can be close to God? And if you haven't taken that step, today's your day, and we want to help you do that. For those of us who have taken that step, though, it's good for us to just to ponder, how are we doing in bringing God to people? Even to ask God, how am I doing representing you to the people around me? Am I open to your power and authority working through me? Am I full of grace and truth, or do I need to balance that in some way? Am I living a holy life? Not a, not a perfect life, but a, a holy life. Or do I need to realign there to ask those questions? And th- there's so much overlap when we think about how we represent God to people and how we bring ourselves to God. God, is my life a sacrifice that's, that, that praises you? In what I say and what I do, am I honoring and glorifying you? We can also consider how we're doing bringing others to God and showing them the way to Jesus. Are there people in your life that you're praying and interceding for? Are there people in your life that you are blessing, that you're hoping for an opportunity to help introduce them 
to, to God and how they can draw near to him. These are good things for us to ponder. And I want to invite you to do that right now. Just take a minute. If you want to bow your heads, you can, just to create a moment between you and the Lord. Worship team, you can come back and be ready to lead us again. But just ponder these questions or maybe ask this question of God. God, who do you want me to be a priest to today? Who is it that you want me to help connect with you? Just ponder that for a moment. Lord, as we have looked at your word today, we take seriously our identity as priests. Uh, Lord, I, I personally am grateful that it's not my job to sacrifice animals and do some of the things that Aaron and his sons and their descendants had to do. But I'm so grateful, God, for the calling and the privilege to get to represent you to people and bring people to you. Lord, I want to do that better. And uh, we as a church, we want to embrace that corporate identity for us, that we are, we are together your priests. Lord, I pray that we would represent you well to people in how we treat each other and in how we treat those outside of, of faith, that we would be full of grace and truth. Lord, I pray that we would be upright and holy in how we live. Uh, Lord, I pray that this would be a church where your power and authority are seen so that we give an accurate, full-orbed sense of who you are to the people around us and people that will come and join us. Lord, I pray that you would help us as Chapel in the Pines to do an increasingly good job of introducing people to you and helping them cross that bridge that's you, Jesus, so they can draw near to you, Father. I pray that you give us insight on how to do that. And even in these, even in these you know, opportunities we have coming up, Lord, even just the Harvest Hoedown, a very initial step, but maybe a step toward a relationship with people to help introduce them to you. A Christmas Eve service that will have another opportunity for that. Lord, I pray that as people come and as they, they come into these gatherings, our worship services and what happens with our kids and our youth and at connection groups and Bible studies and Lord, all the places where we get together when people come, they'd be aware I'm in the temple of the Lord. His presence is here. May it be, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. Chapel family, I bless you in the name of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, who gives us all that we need, including his presence. And so I bless you with a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, that it would indeed be a filling to overflow so that you will spill over with God's love and grace into the lives of people around you, that they will understand who God is because they're around you and they see you and how you live. I bless you with grace and truth holiness and righteousness, power and authority in the name of Jesus to be who God has called you to be and do what he's called you to do and go where he's called you to go even as we go from this place into the week ahead. So Chapel family, as we go from this time, we are blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Bless you.